0: One of the joys of being a parent, of course, is the the banter that you often get in your household. When the when the kids were little, I I, I recall we, we used to have a quote book. And the best quotes were between the ages of two and four because because the kids were accumulating words and conceptually starting to put them together, but not always the right way. So I remember remember Nat looking at his finger and saying, Hey, my finger's got two knees in it, and, which was great, because you could see exactly what was ticking around his soon-to-be engineering mind, but it was just kind of getting, getting, you know, looking, oh, there's two knees in there. But sometimes, I think it's as young adults that we get the best banter. Um, so a recent conversation in our house had to do with Joel's latest haircut, and um, you, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I, I thought it was best, perhaps, just to say nothing at all. I mean... What, what do I say about haircuts? Um, but, um, but Beck, his sister-in-law, decided she had an opinion and shared it. And uh, as Joel was leaving and going out the door, he simply turned around and he said, don't judge me. You don't know my story. And then he kind of left. <laughs> and such is the banter that we enjoy. But big judged, judging and judgmentalism, they're kind of words, aren't they, that, that I guess for all of us, we can feel a little awkward around. People do commonly feel judged nowadays. When they think of the church, often one of the, one of the ideas or thoughts that people have about the church is, is the church are filled with people who judge others, and, and we're very judgmental. And yet judgment, it's, it's a part of life. Uh, passing judgment, and, and indeed judges, being a judge, is as old as time almost itself. But a judgment made without reference to God Will always be prejudicial. A judgment made without reference to God will always be prejudicial, you, or you might say prejudiced. It won't be a good judgment. And we're going to have a little bit of a look at judgment today. We're in the closing chapters of, of Mark, Mark chapter 15. We've had Jesus on trial, and now he is sent to Pilate for judgment. And as we read through this passage, it's kind of disturbing. I don't know about you, but it, but it kind of upsets you because you, you're looking at man passing judgment on God. And it, well, it was never going to go well, was it? But as we read through the passage, it disturbs you because you're thinking, oh, no, I hate this. I, I hate this. This is so unfair. This is so unjust. This is a really poor judgment. And yet we have to come to grips with judgment and, and the way that that works. So turn with me Um. In your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 and we're going to read um, verses 1 through to 15 Mark chapter 15 verses 1 through to 15 this is Jesus before Pilate verse 1 very early in the morning the chief priests with the elders the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin they made their plans so they bound Jesus led him away and handed him over to Pilate are you the king of the Jews asked Pilate you have said so Jesus replied The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner who the people requested. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, the context here is is that of the trial, the illegal trial, in the early hours of the morning, um, that basically led to trying to get a quick verdict on Jesus. Um, Pilate, like many Rome officials, he would spend the Passover in Jerusalem at the palace there and, and he would basically, like many Roman officials, he would basically spend dawn to midday seeing various people and hearing complaints. And so the Sanhedrin were, were quick to bring Jesus in and try and get their complaint heard. They could have taken a couple of angles. For instance, they could have talked about Jesus speaking against the temple because, well, under their own law, they could they could uh, condemn somebody for that. But, but probably the Romans weren't going to crucify Jesus for that. And basically they needed, that's what they needed Pilate to do. And so they They chose this other charge, the Messianic charge, the fact that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. That's the one that they chose to bring before Pilate because, well, that was a threat to the emperor. The Roman Empire didn't like other kings. And so by bringing this particular charge to Pilate, they had a shot at actually getting Jesus crucified. And then as Pilate was talking to the crowd, they worked the crowd and they worked them into a frenzy. And even though Pilate could see that that they could release someone and, and try to turn everything on its head by saying, well, hey, why didn't, you, why didn't you have Jesus released to you? Nonetheless, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to cry out, no, Barabbas, that's who we want. Release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And that's the scene that kind of takes place in front of us. It's a judgment and it's a poor judgment. And I guess the bottom line is ever ever since the fall of mankind where we shared in the glory of God and the wisdom of God, but then we fell away from God and and after that, our capacity to discern well, to, to judge amazingly because we so longed to be able to discern between good and evil, but now we had our wish and we just couldn't do it. Ever since that moment, it's been a problem for humanity to judge well, to be able to discern well. And so passing judgment is not easy, but it's necessary. And in fact, you might say in, in many day, in many ways that, that judgment actually can have quite a positive kind of an outcome. Here's a definition of judgment. This doesn't sound too bad, doesn't it? The ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? That's talking about um, our sense of fashion. That's talking about what shoes we, we happen to wear in the morning and getting to match. It's, hey, a very discerning, fashionable dresser. That, that has to do with uh, uh, discerning or judging what dish is going to go with the main and, and maybe even making a judgment or a, or a decision a call on something at a restaurant. In fact, in many respects, we're making judgments. We are discerning this or that all day, every day. And many of them go so seamlessly that we sort of don't even think about it. We make good judgments every day. Judgments and, and judging is not necessarily a bad thing. We have to do it to survive. And yet it can have something of a negative connotation. We'll get to that in a moment. But we have to make judgments in this life. And more than that, we actually have to do exactly what the Pharisees here were doing, and that is we have to, at some point in our life, make a judgment about God himself. Uh, who are we to judge God? And yet, each of us has to make a call on it, don't we? We have to judge whether God is who he says he is. We have to make a judgment as to, is Jesus who he says he is? Um, for instance, take uh, Romans 10.10. Romans For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Basically, this is, this is how Paul describes the way in which we become a Christian, the way in which we come to salvation. We, we have to, in our heart, in our, the very, very centre of our being, we have to, in our heart of hearts, come to a place where we truly believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is who he says he is. That's a judgment. We are making a judgment about God in that that case. Even as the Sanhedrin here were trying Jesus, all humanity at some point or another must trial God. They must make up a decision. Does God exist? They must make up their minds. Is Jesus God? Because that's who he said he was. And then once we make up our minds that, okay, Jesus, you are God, you are God, then we have to make a, a multitude of decisions after that so that we can obey him carefully. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, um, to be my disciple, you have to obey all of my commands. And so we'll have to make a whole series of judgment calls about what it is that Jesus commanded and how to put that into practice, how it is that we can obey all of all of Jesus' commands and and be be a disciple. But how do we do that? What's the most fair, equitable way to judge God? Do we judge him on his actions? Do we judge him on his character? How do we judge God? What's what's a fair way to do that? Do we do we read through the Bible and look at the stories and kind of think, well, well, they're nice stories. I like them. Okay, God, tick, you're good. Well, Jesus actually says the way to to judge God, the way to judge him is through his word. Interestingly, Jesus in John 12, 47, 48 opens up this by declaring that, hey, I have not come to judge. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, there is a judge for the one who rejects Me, and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. What is Jesus saying? He was saying in his earthly ministry, in his earthly life, he didn't primarily come to judge. He came to save. But there will be a judgment. Based on the words that he spoke, a day will come where we will have to make a decision. And we have to do that in this lifetime. We have to make a decision about Jesus and that decision will be based on his word, the word of God. So that is the way in which we judge God according to his word, what God has revealed about himself. We look at his word and his revelation to us and we make a judgment. We say, okay, uh, uh, in faith, I believe that. I believe everything that you say about yourself. You are God. Or we make a decision, no. No. No, no, that doesn't make sense to me at all. But we have to make that decision, and there is repercussions about what we decide. And so judgments is something that each and every one of us must make. I guess it gets a little bit more complicated, doesn't it, when it comes to not judging God, but judging others. And this is where sometimes the church gets a little bit of a bad rap or reputation. And yet we have to do it. And we all do it. I think it's a little, bit, a little bit hypocritical to say that the church is judgmental because in all truth, the world is judgmental, really. Everybody is making judgments about everybody. The question for us Christians is just because everybody's doing it doesn't let us off the hook. We still need to judge one another well if we judge at all. And that's where Scripture tells us to be very careful here. Notice here that Jesus, as our example for all Christians, he actually says, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save them. There's a big clue on this whole matter of judging others that that Jesus himself didn't come to judge, but he came to save. In fact, in Matthew 7, 1, he warns his followers straight up. He says, do not judge, do not judge or you too will be judged. So in this, in this whole matter of how judgment works amongst the people of God, we have to be very careful. Um, Paul picks up the same theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 4-5. I, I really like this verse. He says this, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. That, that would be the appointed time when the Lord comes. If you're kind of thinking, oh, I want to make a judgment. When is that? When the Lord returns. That's, that's, that's when you can make your judgment. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Isn't that a cool verse? You, you can say yes. I, I mean... Hey, all scripture is cool, but, but this one in particular, hey, this, this is really instructive for the church, isn't it? But it could be confusing because if you read this in chapter 4 and then you got to chapter 5 where Paul is dealing with the sexually immoral brother, then all of a sudden it seems that he might be contradicting himself. Look at this in chapter 5, 12. He says, hey, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those who are outside. Now, this is in the context of somebody within the church who is, is flagrantly committing sexual immorality. It's wrong. And Paul, in this case, is saying, okay, now, that is obvious. That is an obvious sin, and that that person needs to be judged. But here's the interesting thing. Remember, back in, in chapter 4, he says, do not pass judgment, judge nothing. Until the appointed time. The appointed time is when the Lord comes. So, what's the difference? What is Paul saying? Is he contradicting himself or not? Notice in chapter four, what he is talking about here is the exposing of the motives of the heart. In chapter five, In context, he's talking about a particular behaviour. Chapter 4, he's talking about the heart. There seems to be a difference between judging a person's heart, their inner motives and what is going on in them, and judging their behaviour, what it it is actually that they're doing. And so within the church, we are to, if a behaviour is wrong, we are to expose that and judge that in an appropriate fashion. And just by the way, you take 1 Timothy 5, there's a very, very... Um, careful way in which we must go about that. We will be held accountable for our, our words, and particularly the careless ones. And so we need to go about this in the right way. But when it comes to judging the heart, Paul is kind of saying, don't do that. There is a time in which all of the inner motives of the heart will be exposed, but God himself will do that. Therefore, just withhold judgment and wait. I was at some board meetings in in January, and we had a, um, uh, a consultant, um, he, he would normally in the business or the corporate sector command quite an hourly rate, and he was working with the Hellenic Ministries board, and on one occasion, um, somebody ventured to, to comment on what everybody else is thinking and this consultant who was trained to walk into sort of the corporate arena and kind of kind of take charge of that sort of thing, executives and CEOs with, with big egos and so forth, he was he was not um, he was not backwards and going forwards and just saying, Oh well, how let me just hold the comment. Now are you a mind reader. How do you know what is going on in our, in somebody else's head? and And the person who had just made the comment was a little bit stunned, and they sort of ah uh-uh, well i well, I mean what I mean to say is <laughs> and so it became after that there was a, it was a little bit of laughter and chuckling, and it was all all fairly good humored but but we had a we had a saying after after that um, because Robert fettis was his name. he was saying you've got to be careful don't live somebody else's life and so so the so the comment around the board was whenever somebody says, hey, I really think you'd like that steak, was, hey, don't live my life, you know, and so forth. We would constantly say, don't live my life. But it's true. Paul is essentially saying here, we can't read minds. We don't know what is going on in another person's heart. Be careful about judging, judging others in, in this regard. The other thing that we notice about this, this verse in in chapter 5, verse 12, is Paul just gives this little insight. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Fascinating little insight here. God will do that. That's not my job. Um, I've just also, last couple of weeks, I wasn't here, you may have noticed. Uh, I was at board meetings again and uh, flying, um, it was in Chicago. I could show you a photo of everything I saw in Chicago. It looks like a small boardroom. That's about it. That's the only postcard I have. Um, very, very busy time. Flew out again and I got a great deal on a flight, which took me about six hours to travel for, um, from Chicago to St. Louis, because I happened to be on the flight with people from St. Louis, not St. Louis, but from St. Louis to LA. There's a long way around and, and so forth. But when I was boarding the St. Louis to LA flight, um, it was free seating. And so if you were in section A, awesome you kind of got the best seats. Section B, where well, you could get the aisle seats. And then Section C was whatever was left over. So I kind of got onto the plane and I turned the corner and I looked down there. Sure enough, all the, all the windows gone, all the aisles gone. It was a little 737, 33 config. And so I kind of thought, well, I'm going to be stuck between people, however, however I play this I might as well go for the front and sure enough row number one had two spare seats right and left. Left had somebody with a dog on the lap so I chose right. Sat down um, and, um, and then as the flight took off and so forth I wondered well you know wonder what four hour flight I wonder what's in store here. And so I soon found out that I was sitting between a movie critic and a gay black man. That was not my judgment, that was how he introduced himself. That was, that was the way that he identified himself. So, four hours, I thought this is gonna be intriguing. And, and as we, you know, we didn't need an icebreaker, actually he just spilled his drink over me and that started the conversation flowing, as did the drink. It was, you know, we're off to a great, great start. But as we were talking, I was sort of having that dual conversation, the conversation with him and the film critic um, on my my right, as well as a conversation with God. You know, I've taken seriously this year the words of Jesus, I only speak the words that my father gives me. Now, they were talking about a whole myriad of things about which I had a whole myriad of opinions. But I kept hearing the words, I only speak that which the, the words the father gives me. So I'm sitting on that and I'm thinking, okay, Father, what do you want me to say? And what I kept getting back, which you can imagine this is more difficult for me, was just listen. Four hours. Just listen, Stuart. So I listened. And you'll see why in a moment this became important. As the flight went on and I was was listening to to, uh, my two new friends, um, and they just, for the entire flight, never asked me what I did for a living, which I, I was waiting for because I thought that'll be really interesting. But they didn't ask me what I did for a living, and it's usually a bit of a conversation stopper, but no, this conversation was flowing. I'm sure it would have been fine. But as the flight went on, my, my friend on the left just, just described growing up as a gay black man in St. Louis, the Bible about the South, and how he had delighted in moving to California, San Francisco. I said, why is that? And he said, well, in California, I feel less judged. I said, interesting. Why, why is that? And so I just kept asking questions. I was quite fascinated. But as I was also thinking about responses and things to say, only speak the words the Father gives you, Stuart. So I kept praying, oh, Lord, what, what are you giving me? What are you giving me? Just listen. Just listen. Ah so boring, but but although it's probably loving and caring too. So I just kept asking questions and, and so forth. And then later on in the flight, still mopping up my jeans and my seat, he says to me the most extraordinary thing. In summing up his conversation about how less judged he feels in California, he says, it's a little bit like what's happening right here now. I said, what's that? He said, look at us three people from very different walks of life. I thought, you don't know how different. He said, very different walks of life, from different countries and different cultures, but here we are not judging each other and getting along so well. And I thought, that's fascinating. Thank you, Jesus, for just telling me to zip it and, and just listen and just be and just care and just... Just talk to this person as a person. You know, I didn't know that I was speaking on this passage. I I wasn't thinking about this verse. But as I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think to that flight and that conversation where Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God would do that. God would do that. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge but to save. Fascinating. And I felt that it was very, very instructive for the different ways in which we approach different situations in life. It's not mine to judge those outside the church. It is mine to love them and to listen to them and to be there for them and to try to be Jesus. I wonder if sometimes we miss this one. And that's why as a church we get the reputation instead of for being a community of love, for being a community that judges. Do you think that could be true? I wonder if sometimes we can miss that. But here's a good reminder of how Jesus would have us act. But we are also, this, this verse reminds us, from time to time, it is necessary to judge the behaviours within the church. Sometimes we get stuff wrong and, and God loves us too much and calls us to love one another too much to, to let those, those things go. And in those matters, again, carefully and along biblical guidelines, we need to pick up on those behaviours that are not okay and that we need to talk to each other about, not in a punitive fashion, but in a corrective fashion because we want to be more and more like Jesus. I remember I do a lot of references for people in my role as pastor. I've probably done references for you. Uh, You're going for a new job, and I often do a reference. You're sending your kids to a Christian school, and I do a reference. You want to rent a house, and I do a reference. You're going on a beach mission or a coffee shop, and we do references. So I, I do a lot of references. I had one that was quite fascinating one time. It came in, and the email just said, um, it was an application for a new job. And the email just said, Stuart, would you would you mind being my referee and um, um, giving a reference for who you know me to be? And I really liked that wording. Would you please give me a reference for who you know me to be? In other words, not what you've heard on the grapevine, not what you what you've heard from somebody else. Don't consult the pastoral team. Oh, what do I put in my reference? Would you give me a reference for who you know me to be? That's good wording, isn't it? It's probably a good way for us to approach these decisions. And one other thing on the topic of, of, of what does it look like when the church is involved in, in judging various things is to remember Galatians 6.4, to judge yourself first. Um, You should each judge your own conduct. If it is good, then you can be proud of what you you yourself have done without having to compare it with what somebody else has done. This would be along the same lines as Jesus saying, hey, you're worried about that little speck in somebody else's eye. Don't you realise you've got a log in your own? I sometimes remind myself, Stuart, you ain't got a log, you've got a log jam. You know, it's just step back from a situation. Don't speculate. Don't don't sort of guess what's happening in the lives of others and what their motives might be. And so sort of step back from that and ask yourself this. What's going on in your own life? Do you have a log? Do you have a log jam? What is going on in your heart right now, Stuart? And and I usually find that if I I stand back from a situation and judge myself first. All judgments after that are so much more gracious. It's very, very interesting the way that works, but a good reminder um, in the way that we are to judge various situations. So human judgment is faulty, and we're not immune to that within the church. But what about when we are the ones being judged? We're looking here at the, the Sanhedrin judging Jesus unfairly. And the fact is that sometimes we might be judged unfairly as well. What does the Bible say about that? Well, firstly, it says it. It's going to happen. Um, when you were brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about, what you, uh, about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Notice that it doesn't say if, it says when anticipate the fact that in this life, particularly as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, there are times you're going to be misunderstood. You really are. It's going to happen. When that happens, you can trust God. You can trust God to defend your honour. You can trust God to give you the words that you have to speak at the right time. And here's Here's something really cool. When you are judged, Peter reminds us of this. Dear friends, so don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were were happening to you. But inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Sorry, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Essentially here... Paul is saying when you're criticized, when you're judged, when, when you are in, in, in any, any way going through a fiery ordeal, you are identifying with Christ himself in his sufferings. We often think, don't we when, we, when we have a baptism, we often think, ha-ha, you know, when you go under the water, you identify with the death of Christ. Yep, just as Jesus is dead, so too, my old self is dead. When you come up out of the water, this is the bit we love, this is like identifying with his resurrection, just as Jesus rose again to new life, we too are now living a new life. We are born again. We identify with his death and we identify with his resurrection. What we sometimes don't think about is as we go through life and as we face different situations, which yeah, are difficult, we are also identifying with Jesus in his sufferings. Um, Paul encourages us in the next chapter, chapter 5, actually, says, in the same way that the whole family of God all over the world are going through these sufferings. When you actually suffer for doing the right thing, you are identifying with Christ in his sufferings. It validates you as a child of God. It, It confirms that, yep, I really am a part of God's family because I'm going through what Jesus, the firstborn, has gone through. So there is a sense in which in which it is validating you in your walk with Jesus Christ when you identify with his sufferings as, as well. Anticipate it. Know that you, when you're going through sufferings, are identifying with Christ. And then lastly, consider the fact that in verse 5, this is a standard pilot, Jesus said in reply to all of the accusations that were coming his way, Jesus said absolutely nothing. It's quite possible that the very best thing to say is absolutely nothing when you are being judged by others. Jesus is our example in that. And and quite simply put, Jesus knew who was his ultimate judge. It was his father. And his father was pleased with what he was doing. Know the Father's pleasure. Know the Father's pleasure and know that you don't always have to give a defence for your actions. There may be reasons why on occasions you do, but it may actually not be so. Human judgment is faulty. The Bible says a lot about it. Basically, it says be very careful in this area of making judgments, particularly when it comes to to other people, so that it will go well with you and it builds community and so forth. But then this passage goes on, and it moves on from the faulty judgment of humanity as they as they weigh up the guilt or otherwise of Jesus, the Son of God. That's how we judge, and it moves now to how God judges. When God judges, well, if you're looking at the passage, you're kind of thinking, yeah. Yeah, it's good Where is that? Where exactly is that bit about God's judgment? Do you remember when Mel Gibson brought out the film The Passion of the Christ? Is that too old for some of you? Yeah, yeah it's a few dollars. Most of you know it. It was a remarkable film, incredible portrayal of, of the brutality of the crucifixion. And it went obviously global. It was, it was massive. But one of the things that came out of that was was a bit of an uproar because it was viewed to be anti-Semitic. It did not reflect well on Jews. And I guess the question that many people asked was, was it ultimately the fault of the Jews? Well, scripture seems to point in that direction. Certainly it was the Jews, the Sanhedrin or the Quorum of, who put Jesus on trial, right? But then it's, well, it's actually Pilate at this moment, isn't it? That's actually passing judgment. Is it not the Roman officials? So is it the Jews or maybe it's the Romans? Actually, who did crucify Christ? Who's responsible for, for what happened here? But then Pilate defers to the crowd and he says to the crowd, what, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to, to release Jesus to you or Barabbas? And the crowd shouts, crucify him. Yes, stirred up by the chief priests, but it's the crowd who are yelling, crucify Jesus, crucify him. Who crucified Jesus? Hebrews 10.31 says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a person on planet earth who makes the grade. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the penalty for sin is death. We all deserve to die. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God's judgment, the way that God judges, is answered in verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified barabbas gets released jesus is crucified in his place theologians call this substitutionary atonement there's a sense in which the whole purpose and reason for jesus going to the cross that he would die on our behalf is captured in this little moment in which barabbas who was guilty of murder is released and set free And Jesus instead dies in his place and is crucified. Jesus becomes the substitute for Barabbas. Barabbas goes free. Jesus dies in his place. That's what we call substitutionary atonement. That's God's judgment on the matter. Whilst it is Pilate who makes the ultimate decision, in God's sovereignty, this was his plan and purpose the whole time. Who crucified Jesus? Ultimately, God did. It was God's decision to sacrifice his son on our behalf. Barabbas is set free and Jesus is crucified. He handed him over to be crucified. Jonathan Edwards um, was a Puritan preacher. In New England, 1741 I think it was, he preached his famous sermon in the hands of an angry God. His objective was to to try to get his listeners to understand the reality of hell, and, and he painted a very, very vivid picture of the torment of being eternally separated from God. Theologians and, and students of, of preaching and homiletics have studied this particular sermon because, because this was felt to be the start of the, the great awakening. God took a very normal sermon Um, Edward's preaching was often said to be in a fairly moderate sort of a fashion. He wasn't one to yell or to work up a crowd. It has seemed that the Spirit of God took that message and used it to great effect, so much so that people were interrupting him often to cry out, what must I do to be saved? How can anyone be saved? As he preached, revival broke out. His attempts to paint the reality of the, the, the torment of hell, of being separated from God for all eternity, seemed to hit a chord with many people. Essentially, what he was trying to paint was a, was a picture in which, apart from God, our life is absolutely wretched. Absolutely wretched. Steve Camp, um, popular singer, way back a little bit, if you study the hairdos there, both of them actually, he took that notion of in the hands of an angry God and, and he put it into a song. And here are the lyrics. But the hands of an angry God were pierced and bleeding as he embraced all heaven's wrath Upon the cross and the hands of an angry God still reach out pleading, for He came to seek and save that which was lost. Salvation is today. Receive God's only Son. Turn from your sin. Oh, let all the weary come. Nothing but His grace, nothing but His blood, can justify a sinner in the hands of. Of an angry God, Powerful lyrics aren't they? I, I wonder if we better understood our predicament without Jesus, how we might respond. But if but if I can put it this way, imagine your most anxious moment. Imagine the trauma of your worst moment ever, the the moment where you had totally come to the end of yourself, where you were totally preoccupied by an anxiety so real and so vivid that you thought life itself might end. I, I don't know if you've had that kind of a moment. But just imagine your most anxious, horrid moment And imagine that going for all eternity. Imagine that going on and on and on. Because when we remove God from the world, when we remove God from the picture, when we remove God from your life, that's what you're left with. God's presence in the world, yes, even a broken world like ours, there is a a grace that keeps things from boiling over, take God out of that picture and you are left with nothing. There is no hope. There is absolutely no grace. There is nothing. Take God out of the picture, out of your life, and you are left with your most anxious, fearful moments for all of eternity. That's what we, we mean when we say hell being separated from God for all of eternity, that that anxiousness going on and on and on. And I wonder if, if you could imagine that, if you could imagine the worst moment of your life going on and on and on for all of eternity, that being a description of hell, I wonder if, faced with that reality or this one hope that Jesus could die in your place, that he could be substituted for you, I wonder then would you possibly yell, crucify him, crucify him. Because if you were faced with the choice of your worst moment going on and on and on and on and on for all of eternity, which is, Too much for the average person to bear or the fact that the one option, the one possibility for salvation that you might have is that Jesus would step into your place and be substituted for you in that moment, would you possibly, would you possibly join the crowds and yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? Because it was your only way out. Who crucified Jesus? I think God heard our plea. There was no way out but Jesus. And he said, okay, I will. Okay. For your sake. Because I love you. That's the gospel of grace. The reality is this passage ends with Pilate saying, and he handed him over to be crucified. But Jesus had already spoken into this. In John ten seventeen, he says, the father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. That's the gospel of grace. That's our Saviour. That's our Jesus. That's who took our place, substituted Himself for us. Verse 7. Of this passage introduced to us Barabbas. A man called Barabbas. But you could put your name there. A man called A woman called just insert your name. Pilate released Stuart. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate released you. God released you. God released you. And in your place, handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's our gospel of grace. In Christ, God does judge. And he judges you to be not guilty. He judges you to be not guilty, because you are released. Just like Barabbas, you are released. Jesus has taken your place. That's that's grace. That is grace. Guys are going to lead us in the song "Reckless, Reckless Love." Um, from a human standpoint, it really is pretty reckless. From God's standpoint. It made so much sense. And I wonder if as we sing this song, you might, you might want to somehow respond. This message of the hands of an angry God pierced and bleeding for you, Jesus Christ serving as your substitute so that you might be released, him crucified for your release. I wonder if that may have struck a chord with you afresh, and in some way, you just want to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You want to acknowledge or perhaps even accept for the very first time. You've, you've heard about this gospel, this good news that Christians speak of, but, but it's never really made sense to you until tonight, and you've thought, okay, I got it. I got it. I, I want in. I, I would like Jesus to be the substitute for me and you can do that simply by saying yes to him. Just saying yes to God. God, I believe you. I believe you are who you say you are. Jesus, I believe you are God. You say you are. I believe you are and you died in my place. I'm so sorry for my sin. I accept the forgiveness that he's offered only in you. Thank you, Jesus. That's, that's how simple it is. That really is how simple it is. That's the prayer of faith. That's the prayer that ushers you into the kingdom of God, the family of God. That's the prayer that changes your life. That's the prayer that this very night could turn your life right around. But either way, whether it's the first time or whether it's just another time, you want to say tonight, hey, God, thank you. Thank you for being the substitute, the necessary substitute for my sin. Thank you for releasing me into this wonderful life of freedom. And many of you have been studying what it means to be free in Christ. Thank you. I'm released. I'm free. Thank you for what you've done. Maybe during this, this song, you just want to give expression to that. You want to say, thank you, God. Maybe you want to even even treat this, this front area as a little place of response, a little altar where you just come before God and on your knees afresh say, hey, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. A man named Barabbas was released. Jesus was handed over to be crucified. You have been released. Christ in your place has taken the form. Let's pray. Hey, Thank you. Thank you, God, for this incredible gospel of grace. Thank you for the reminder of what you have done through your son, Jesus. We just, yeah, we a little lost for words of time. What, what could we say that would express our indebtedness to you? But forgiveness for everything that we've ever done can be found at the cross. It can be found tonight. I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for taking our place. Thank you that you have judged correctly and your judgments are perfect. Man's judgment is faulty. Your judgment is perfect. And you have found us to be not guilty. So thank you, Jesus.